Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Now my hairi mai. I'm John McDonald, kia ora, and welcome into the Hut Zone on Thursday the 23rd of February. The Hut Zone is Wellington Access Radio's weekly look into the stories, history, people, poems and music that make the Hutt Valley community. Tonight we talk to Butterfly Creek Theatre Troupe Director Tanya Pijas on the current Bard in the Yard production, Shakespeare's Henry IV Part 1, which has its opening night tonight at Miratai School, we hear more in our history series with Vin or Snowbenge from Upper Hutt Library's archives. This week, Vin finishes talking about his father, Len Benge. There's a short story from former Eastbourne writer Catherine Mansfield called Honeymoon, read by Pat Tully, and poetry from Wanyamata's David Smith, Things That Give Me Hope. And there's plenty of local music throughout, from Upper Hutt's The Formula, If I Had The Time, Darren Watson, Evil in the House, and Avalon Intermediate and their Kapahaka group. But let's start the show with some jazzy music from Bruce Aiken, The Effect of Days Ending in Y.
was the effect of days ending and why performed by bruce aiken and his band okay time for this week's poetry slot i'm arlene croft and this poem by wiley martin's david smith is called things that give me hope unlikely friendships golden wedding anniversaries, cold turkey success stories, doctors who don't pull the plug, guns that misfire, what some give up to help others, sunshine on my shoulders, great poetry. And that was Things That Give Me Hope from Wanyamata's David Smith, read by Trentham's Arlene Croft. OK, let's get into the Catherine Mansfield zone, shall we, and hear a short story reading. the Ketchikan Public Library. This evening I'll read Honeymoon, published posthumously in The Dove's Nest in late 1923. And when they came out of the lace shop, there was their own driver in the cab they called their own cab waiting for them under a plane tree. What luck! Wasn't it luck? Fanny pressed her husband's arm. These things seemed always to be happening to them ever since they came abroad. Didn't he think so, too? But George stood on the pavement edge, lifted his stick, and gave a loud, Hi! Fanny sometimes felt a little uncomfortable about the way George summoned cabs, but the drivers didn't seem to mind, so it must have been all right. Fat, good-natured, and smiling, they stuffed away the little newspaper they were reading, whipped the cotton cover off the horse, and were ready to obey. I say, George said as he helped Fanny in, suppose we go and have tea at the place where the lobsters grow. Would you like to? Most awfully, said Fanny, fervently as she leaned back, wondering why the way George put things made them sound so very nice. Right, yeah, he was beside her. Allez, he cried gaily, and off they went. Off they went, spanking along lightly, under the green and gold shade of the plane trees, through the small streets that smelled of lemons and fresh coffee, past the fountain square where women, with water-pots lifted, stopped talking to gaze after them, round the corner past the café, with its pink and white umbrellas, green tables and blue siphons, and so to the seafront. There a wind, light, warm, came flowing over the boundless sea, it touched George, and Fanny it seemed to linger over while they gazed at the dazzling water. And George said, Jolly, isn't it? And Fanny, looking dreamy, said, as she said at least twenty times a day since they came abroad, Isn't it extraordinary to think that here we are quite alone, away from everybody, with nobody to tell us to go home or to, to order us about except ourselves? 
George had long since given up answering, Extraordinary! As a rule, he merely kissed her. But now he caught hold of her hand, stuffed it into his pocket, pressed her fingers, and said, I used to keep a white mouse in my pocket when I was a kid. Did you? said Fanny, who was intensely interested in everything George had ever done. Were you very fond of white mice? Barely, said George, without conviction. He was looking at something bobbing out there beyond the bathing steps. Suddenly, he jumped in his seat. Fanny, he cried, there's a chap out there bathing. You see, I had no idea people had begun. I've been missing it all these days. George glared at the reddened face, the reddened arm, as though he could not look away. At any rate, he muttered, wild horses won't keep me from going in tomorrow. Fanny's heart sank. She had heard for years of the frightful dangers of the Mediterranean. It was an absolute death trap. Beautiful, treacherous Mediterranean. There it lay curled before them, its white, silky paws touching the stones and gone again. But she'd made up her mind long before she was married that never would she be the kind of woman who interfered with her husband's pleasures. So all she said was, airily, I suppose one has to be very up in the currents, doesn't one? Oh, I don't know, said George. People talk an awful lot of rot about the danger. But now they were passing a high wall on the land side, covered with flowering heliotrope, and Fanny's little nose lifted. Oh, George, she breathed, the smell, the most divine. Topping Villa, said George. Look, you can see it through the palms. Isn't it rather large, said Fanny, who somehow could not look at any villa except as a possible habitation for herself and George. Well, you'd need a crowd of people if you stayed there long, replied George, deadly otherwise. I say, it is ripping. I wonder who it belongs to. And he prodded the driver in the back. The lazy, smiling driver, who had no idea, replied, as he always did on these occasions, that it was the property of a wealthy Spanish family. Masses of Spaniards on this coast, commented George, leaning back again, and they were silent until, as they rounded a bend, a big bone-white hotel restaurant came into view. Before it there was a small terrace built up against the sea, planted with umbrella palms, set out with tables, and at their approach from the terrace, from the hotel, waiters came running to receive, to welcome Fanny and George, to cut them off from any possible kind of escape. Outside? Oh, but of course they would sit outside. The sleek manager, who was marvelously like a fish in a frock coat, skimmed forward. This way, sir, this way, sir. I have a very nice little table, he gasped. Just the little table for you, sir, over in the corner. This way. So George, looking most dreadfully bored, and Fanny, trying to look as though she'd spent years of life threading her way through strangers, followed after. Here you are, sir. Here you will be very nice, coaxed the manager, taking the vase off the table and putting it down again as if it were a fresh little bouquet out of the air. But George refused to sit down immediately. He saw through these fellows. He wasn't going to be done. These chaps were always out to rush you. So he put his hands in his pockets and said to Fanny, very calmly, This all right for you? Anywhere else you'd prefer? How about over there? 
and he nodded to a table right over the other side. What it was to be a man of the world. Fanny admired him deeply, but all she wanted to do was to sit down and look like everybody else. I, I like this, she said. Right, said George hastily, and he sat down almost before Fanny and said quickly, tea for two and chocolate eclairs. Very good, sir, said the manager, and his mouth opened and shut as though he was ready for another dive under the water. You will not have toast to start with? We have very nice toast, sir. No, said George shortly. You don't want toast, do you, Fanny? Oh, no, thank you, George, said Fanny, praying the manager would go. Or perhaps the lady might like to look at the live lobsters in the tank while the tea is coming. And he grimaced and smirked and flicked his serviette like a fin. George's face grew stony. He said no again, and Fanny bent over the table, unbuttoning her gloves. When she looked up, the man was gone. George took off his hat, tossed it on a chair, and pressed back his hair. Thank God, he said, that chap's gone. These foreign fellows bore me stiff. The only way to get rid of them is to simply shut up as you saw I did. Thank heaven, sighed George again with so much emotion that if it hadn't been ridiculous, Fanny might have imagined that he had been as frightened of the manager as she. As it was, she felt a rush of love for George. His hands were on the table, brown, large hands that she knew so well. She longed to take one of them and squeeze it hard. But, to her astonishment, George did just that thing, leaning across the table, put his hand over hers, and said, without looking at her, Fanny, darling Fanny. Oh, George, it was in that heavenly moment that Fanny heard a twing-twang tootle-tootle and a light strumming. There's going to be music, she thought, but the music didn't matter just then. Nothing mattered except love. Faintly smiling, she gazed into that faintly smiling face, and the feeling was so blissful that she felt inclined to say to George, let us stay here where we are, at this little table. It's perfect, and the sea is perfect. Let us stay. But instead her eyes grew serious. Darling, said Fanny, I want to ask you something fearfully important. Promise me you'll answer. Promise. I promise, said George, too solemn to be quite as serious as she. It's this. Fanny paused a moment, looked down, looked up again. Do you feel, she said softly, that you really know me now, but really, really know me? It was too much for George. Know his Fanny? He gave a broad, childish grin. I should jolly well think I do, he said emphatically. Why, what's up? Fanny felt he hadn't quite understood. She went on quickly. What I mean is this. So often people, even when they love each other, don't seem to... to it's so hard to say, know each other perfectly. They don't seem to want to. And I think that's awful. They misunderstand each other about the most important things of all. Fanny looked horrified. George, we couldn't do that, could we? We never could. Couldn't be done, laughed George. And he was just going to tell her how much he liked her little nose when the waiter arrived with the tea and the band struck up. It was a flute a guitar, and a violin, and it played so gaily that Fanny felt 
If she wasn't careful, even the cups and saucers might grow little wings and fly away. George absorbed three chocolate eclair, Fanny two. The funny-tasting tea, lobster in the kettle, shouted George above the music, was nice all the same, and when the tray was pushed aside and George was smoking, Fanny felt bold enough to look at the other people. But it was the band grouped under one of the dark trees that fascinated her the most. The fat man stroking the guitar was like a picture. The dark man playing the flute kept raising his eyebrows as though he was astonished at the sounds that came from it. The fiddler was in shadow. The music stopped as suddenly as it had begun. It was then she noticed a tall old man with white hair standing beside the musicians. Strange she hadn't noticed him before. He wore a very high, glazed collar, a coat green at the seams, and shamefully shabby button boots. Was he another manager? He did not look like a manager, and yet he stood there gazing over the table, as though thinking of something different and far away from all this. Who could he be? Presently, as Fanny watched him, he touched the points of his collar with his fingers, coughed slightly, and half turned to the band. It began to play again. Something boisterous, reckless, full of fire, full of passion, was tossed into the air, was tossed to that quiet figure, which clasped its hands, and still with that faraway look, began to sing. Good Lord, said George. It seemed that everybody was equally astonished. Even the little children eating ices stared, with their spoons in the air. Nothing was heard except the thin, faint voice, the memory of a voice, singing something in Spanish. It wavered, beat on, touched the high notes, fell again, seemed to implore, to entreat, to beg for something, and then the tune changed, and it was resigned, it bowed down, it knew it was denied. Almost before the end, a little child gave a squeak of laughter, but everybody was smiling, except Fanny and George. Is life like this too? thought Fanny. There are people like this. There is suffering. And she looked at that gorgeous sea, lapping the land as though it loved it, and the sky, bright with the brightness before evening. Had she and George the right to be so happy? Wasn't it cruel? There must be something else in life that made all these things possible. What was it? She turned to George. But George had been feeling differently from Fanny. The poor old boy's voice was funny in a way. But, God, how it made you realize what a terrific thing it was to be at the beginning of everything, as they were, he and Fanny. George, too, gazed at the bright, breathing water, and his lips opened as if he could drink it. How fine it was! There was nothing like the sea for making a chap feel fit. And there sat Fanny, his Fanny, leaning forward, breathing so gently. Fanny, George called to her. As she turned to him, something in her soft, wondering look made George feel that for two pins he would jump over the table and carry her off. I say, said George rapidly, let's go, shall we? Let's go back to the hotel. Come, do, Fanny darling, let's go now. The band began to play. Oh, God, almost groaned George. Let's go before the old codger begins squawking again. And a moment later, they were gone.
I'm John McDonald, and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, and that was Honeymoon by Catherine Mansfield, read by Pat Tully of Ketchikan Public Library. Now you can find more of their readings on their YouTube channel. Okay, time for some local music. From the formula, here's If I Had The Time.
was Upper Hutt's The Formula and If I Had The Time. Staying in Upper Hutt, let's hear more in the 2001 History Series with Vin or Snow Benge from Upper Hutt Library's archives. The interviewer is Nicola Freon. continuing on about Dad and his influence on us as kids. Dad was no longer living at home after I was 12 years old, but we saw him every day at the garage. On the way home from school, we'd call him every day. Um, School holidays, I spent much of my school holidays helping at the garage, greasing cars, washing dirty parts, pulling cars to bits and all sorts of stuff like that. And I spent uh, a lot of my time at the garage, so I had a lot to do with Dad there. I guess my interest in engineering started at the garage because there I had access to Dad's tools and uh, I made a steam engine when I was just a young teenager, perhaps 12 or 13. I put um, spring forks on my bike, made a set of gears (laughs) for my bike and fitted them on and I was able to make lots of things at the garage with the tools. Doing interest, things like this interested me, me far more than um, repairing cars, which was rather a dirty job, so I enjoyed making things. It was quite good having that. Another thing we used to do at the garage was um, we had a bike. Dad bought us a bike, one bike between the three of us. <laughs> we were a bit scarce those days, especially during the war. And uh, it used to be kept at the garage. And after school, we'd go and have turns riding up the railway station, which is up the end of Princess Street, backwards and forwards. <laughs> <laughs> the three of us, your turn, my turn, and Alvin's turn. So later on, Dad got me a, a bike f- from the post office, which was an old postie's bike. <laughs> it was worn out, but mm. that was my bike. I'd just like to go back to to your father's garage experiences. During the Second World War, uh, your father uh, stayed in Upper Hutt, did he? Yes, yeah. Um, he wasn't in the, in the, in the armed forces. Um, Possibly his business is regarded as an important um, contribution to locality. Um, and also uh, his accident when he smashed his four ribs gave him a lot of chest problems for quite some time. It was fairly serious, uh, but he got through that all right. Um, so possibly that's why I'm not positive. He was involved with um, doing any mechanical work for the armed forces during the Second World War? Yeah, I don't recall him ever doing anything for the New Zealand Army, which is at Trentham, but he was a, um, a bit involved in the American Marines Silverstream Hospital. They built Silverstream Hospital for the wounded American soldiers from the Pacific, and they had a few vehicles up there. Um, and I remember jeeps mostly coming to the garage to get bits and pieces done. Mm. Uh, American Marines that brought them up uh, always had uh, plenty of Marine and uh, they would always be uh, dissing out to us, my, 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 me and my brothers, uh, say, here kid, have some candy. And uh, during the war, that stuff was just about impossible to get. And so I enjoyed uh, having the American candy. And I 
used to keep all the wrappers for them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what sort of lollies were they? Uh, were they different? No, they were sort of, well, the, they had a, a little tin of peanuts, mm. salted peanuts, and I remember I, they did give me a tin of them once, and I kept all the candy wrappers in the little peanut tin. <laughs> uh, it stuck around home for years and years until I eventually threw it away. Uh, different sort of things altogether from what we've got. More like, weren't any things like that that you could buy in New Zealand at the time, but they're probably more like uh, Moro bars and those sort of things that you get now and sticky caramel chocolate beautiful things, <laughs> which were a real treat to kids during the war because uh, yeah. you just didn't get those things. So before the war, a, a treat was a was what a, a boiled lolly. Yeah, boiled sweets and things like that. Yeah, um, mm. or you used to be able to buy uh, during the war. But you could buy toffee milks, which was, which were hard caramel with covered in in chocolate. They were you buy them for a penny each. But during the during the school days, well, we would have been during the war. Um, we had a teacher in standard two. Again, she was a Mrs. Benz. <laughs> she took me from standard one and two. Every Friday, um, we would, um, she'd say, here, go up to town and buy a bag of boiled sweets and give me a, a shilling. It's ten cents. And uh, she'd give us all a, a boiled lolly on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> no sweets, if I remember rightly. Yeah. You mentioned that the um, the Marines would bring jeeps up. Was was that quite a novelty? That that type oh, like of oh yeah, to have a yeah. ride in a jeep and jeep uh, uh, riding a jeep with <laughs> with dad or something like that was was exciting, uh, especially a left hand drive thing. I've always had a soft spot for jeeps ever since, and I like seeing a jeep. It brings back great memories. And did your dad find it very difficult to learn the the the, oh, the mechanics no, of looking no, after all. a new no, kind of vehicle. All, all vehicles were pretty, you know, once you knew one you could sort of, I don't know whether there was any much in the way major major work done on them, but uh, just a recollection that I have of mm. being them there, yeah. Mm. There must have been a few times because I've had quite a collection of um, candy papers, I used to call it candy, uh, mm. over the time that I collected them. Mm. Mm. So after the war, when, when your father was no longer <coughs> living with you, how did your mother manage? Well, Dad, although he wasn't living at home, uh, he was boarding at the Armadale boarding house. He always looked after us, Mum and us boys, financially. We were never in need. Um, Dad always was very generous and uh, would give Mum money she needed to, uh, to uh, anything we needed for our education and clothes. Mm. And <laughs> we did look after us well that way, yes. Mm. Mm. Now, is there anything else you want to say about your, your father at this stage? Um, rather, um, probably sad to say, I never really got to know Dad in a, in a, um, a closer range until he was getting very elderly and we mm. uh, were able to share lots of things that <laughs> we hadn't done during mm. um, earlier life. After he moves into a retirement home down at Silverstream, when he was no longer able to live without uh, a bit of uh, medical help. I used to visit him, take him for drives, bring him home, and uh, we would uh, often go for a drive up to Timaru, and he enjoyed looking around the farm, and he, mm. <laughs> that's where 
many of the um, stories that I've found out of the farm have been told me by Dad when he was probably in his late 80s or just a, a week before he died, Gee. 92. So I took him up to the farm and we went all around and he showed me all sorts of things. We went out and I took him out onto the lookout looking over the farm, the nice. Twin Lakes, which are now the Wellington City Council, Wellington Water Board Reserve, Water Reserve Lakes, and looking at those and telling me about all the hills that are now covered in gorse were all grass and carried sheep when he was young and to the river gorge and all sorts of mm. memories of things like that. And up on the top of the property we went up, drove along, there's a, there's a road that goes in right along the summit of the hill now and there's a number of uh, rural properties um, and we went right along there met a, a chap that I knew from the that worked on the regional council he invited us into his place and dad went in and we walked out, looked out from his balcony which looked right down over the whole Timaru in the valley and really impressed dad he really loved that mm. uh, and that was um, probably my last sort of time I had with dad I'm John McDonald, and you're on the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was Vin Benj talking to Nicola Freon in 2001 on his memories of an early Upper Hut. Thank you to Upper Hut Libraries for letting us play that interview. Part 15 plays next week. OK, time for some more music. Here's Darren Watson and Evil in the House.
And that was Darren Watson with Evil in the House. Is there evil in the theatrical house of my next guest? Probably. Butterfly Creek Theatre Troupe opened tonight with their latest Bard in the Yard production. So I thought it was timely to have a chat to find out about their latest play. So I'm Tanya Pegis and I'm the director of the production and I'm also playing two small roles in the production. To start with then, how did Shakespeare's Henry IV Part One get selected for this year's Bard in the Yard? Okay, so I, um, I've i directed 15 productions up to this point um, since 2007 when I started directing plays. And I decided it was high time I did a Shakespeare. Um, I've been a big Shakespeare fan for a long time. I've, I've seen a lot of Shakespeare. I've been in a couple of Shakespeare's. And yeah, I had I decided I wanted to direct one. So I was thinking, okay, so who does Shakespeare? And, and I thought, oh yes, Butterfly Creek Theatre Troupe does a, a Shakespeare every year and they do their bard in the yard. So yes, I, I emailed them and said, hey, have you got anybody to direct your next bard in the yard yet? If not, I'd like to put my put up my hand. And the committee came back and said, yeah, great, we'd love we'd love you to do that. So. And um, then ensued a discussion about uh, which scripts we would do, and I, I sort of didn't have any particular preferences myself, so I, I asked the committee what they would like, and uh, they came back and they said, well, we've never done one of the histories, and Henry the Fourth Part One is a really nice one, it's very accessible, it's quite funny, and yeah, they, that, was their, that was their idea for, for which one to do, so I, I went away and... Um, read the play and, and watched a, a uh, BBC version of it and thought, yeah, that's great, I, I can do that. So, yeah, that was how it all came about. Now, I assume when you watched the BBC version, they didn't do it in a Star Trek setting. So, so where did the Star Trek setting idea come from? Yes, no, they very much didn't do it in a Star Trek setting. Um, that, that idea came from the fact that I was I was sitting thinking about the production and the always the issue that you have with Shakespeare is that it's very male-heavy on characters, obviously, because Shakespeare always only had male actors to work with. So I was thinking, what's an easy way to make all of the roles cross-castable um, and to make it believable? And I, and I was watching um, Deep Space Nine, actually, on TV, and um, I thought, that's the answer. It's in a Star Trek future. Basically, anybody can be anything. And if you put Henry IV into a Star Trek context, then the king becomes the captain of a spaceship and the captain of a spaceship can be male or female. So that was kind of what led me to that decision. And I thought, well, then I can open up all the roles to cross casting and it should work really well. And it, and, and it does. So I would imagine there's plenty of scope for the Star Trek theme to show itself. How else, apart from the the casting, how else have you you played that side of things? I I was involved in the summer Star Trek uh, shows, which were done um, over five years in in Arrow Park. And I I still know the people who are involved in that, and I I got some of the um, the leftover um, Federation crew shirts from that. So we're using... We're using uh, Star Trek costuming, so all of our, all of the uh, the king and his court, uh, they are all the bridge crew, so they're they're dressed like you know, like you see Kirk and Spock mm-hmm. dressed in the um, in original Star Trek, and also the uh, the full staff scenes, which are set in a pub. That's now the the bar of the ship. So there was um, there was the bar ten forward in um, Star Trek Next Generation. So we're sort of taking that as the um, the, the the idea for that so yeah all, so all of those those characters are all sort of um federation ship crew with the appropriate uniforms and then all of our rebels um who are um in the play they're the northumberland uh earl of northumberland and his family the percy family 
and some Welsh and Scots characters, and they're all various aliens. So they're now Andorians and Klingons and Romulans. Do the sliding doors feature? Yes, they do. Oh, good. <laughs> um, yes, yes, the famous, the famous whoosh, door whoosh is in there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh. And there's some other little, um, little fun things which um, big, big Star Trek fans will recognise. There's a few little nods to um, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Lower Decks in there as well. What about the music? Is there any of the music from Star Trek featuring? Yep, absolutely. The um, yep, the opening uh, the opening theme is there at the beginning, along with a, a captain's log that sets the the scene for what's uh, what oh. happened historically before the play kicks off. And then um, yes, then we've got the Star Trek theme at the end as well. So yep, the famous music is there as well. How serious a Trekkie fan are you? Uh, pretty major. Um, I I got into the original series when I was a teenager, and it was showing on uh, BBC Two in the nineteen eighties in the UK where I grew up. Uh, so I, yeah, I really got into the um, the whole Star Trek vibe then, and then when I it's sort of in the nineties when uh, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager were on, I I was watching those, um, and then yeah, and then I was really excited, you know, in more recent years to to have Discovery and Picard and Strange New Worlds. I mean, it's just amazing. I've watched all of them, so. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge Star Trek nerd, really, and um, yeah, that's uh, that. I mean, this is just a kind of a dream come true for me, really, to to mash up two of my favourite things, being being Shakespeare and Star Trek. Now, I mean, Star Trek is iconic in itself, as well as Shakespeare. Clearly, how do you get the right mashup balance between Shakespeare and Star Trek? You know, so that everyone is satisfied. How have you coped with the balancing act? Yeah, it, it has been a balancing act um, and one that I've had to sort of adjust here and there to, to kind of get it right. Um, so obviously we're using Shakespeare's text. That That's, you know, that's not negotiable. Um, the only thing we've changed about the text is the gender of some of the characters because, you know, as I mentioned, we, we've cross-cast a few of the roles. So some people are now she rather than he. Um, but aside from that, it's, it is it is very much the, the Shakespeare text and the scenes and everything that sort of Shakespeare intended. But it just has the look and feel of, a, of Star Trek. So, like I say, it's got the costumes, um, it's got the sound effects, the music. Um, so it's just kind of re- recontextualizing the, the Shakespeare into a, into a Star Trek sort of environment. I'm hoping that the, the, the Star Trek isn't too over the top. I still want people to appreciate the Shakespeare, and I think... That will happen because the cast have been really good about about delivering the lines and 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 learning the characters still very much as Shakespearean characters and Shakespearean dialogue, but with the sort of the overlay of a of a Star Trek character. Any challenges in in directing this production so far? Uh, yeah, there's been a few. Um, like I say, it's my first Shakespeare production, so um, getting used to directing that as opposed to acting it has been a challenge and sort of understanding the language and the dynamics and making sure that's clear to the audience. And I've been very lucky that um, one of my cast members is a a long time uh, Butterfly Creek member and has done lots of Shakespeare. He's directed it and he's acted in it. Um, And so he's been really useful at sort of helping me um, with with that shaping of the, the text. Um, it's also an outdoor production. I have done one outdoor production before, but um, not, not a show for adults. That was a kid's show. 
So working um, in the in the yard space at, at Butterfly Creek's um, venue at Muratai School has been has been a bit of a challenge. It's it's a great space. Um, it offers lots of variety and different places to to work with. But because it's sort of a fixed space and you don't really have a lot in the way of of set that you can you can set up, it's um, that's been a, a little bit challenging. Just just trying to make the all of the scenes work in that space and make them flow easily from one to another. Yeah, so those have probably been the two biggies. It's also a big cast, there's 16 of us. And so um, because we started rehearsing in the beginning of January, we, you know, we had people going off on holiday and a couple of people got sick. And, you know, so for quite a few rehearsals at the beginning there, we, we didn't have everybody um, on stage, which is always a bit of a, a challenge when you've got other people reading in. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun and everybody's just kind of leapt into the whole thing and um, really run with it. So, yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun to do and I'm really, really looking forward to opening night. And speaking of which, well, actually will be, by the time this goes out, it will be tonight is the open night, which is the 23rd of February. Um, and as you say, that's at Muratai School Yard at 7.30pm and that's running 23rd to the 25th of February and 2nd to the 4th of March. Tickets available from Event Finder and from the Artisan Co-op store in the Eastbourne Village. Do break a leg for the production there. Now, finally, Tanya, what what's this appeal to audiences? I mean, it obviously appeals to the Shakespeare fans because it is still a Shakespeare text. Um, you know, we've 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 been very uh, clear about that. Um, so yeah, the Shakespeare fans will enjoy probably seeing um, a production that you don't get to see very often because people don't really do the histories. They tend to focus on the comedies and the tragedies. And um, so Henry IV Part One, I'm not even sure it's been done in Wellington in recent years. I, I've certainly not seen it since I've been here. So, so that will be new. That will be a chance to see a, a Shakespeare script that you don't you don't get to see performed very often. Um, and obviously the Star Trek fans will enjoy the um, the Star Trek kind of overlay of, um, of the aliens or the classic aliens and. The, uh, some of the, the in-jokes and the different characters. So, um, I think it's something that will have a, have a wide appeal. And um, it, and it's a really funny play as well. It's actually probably more comedy than drama. So there's, there's a lot to enjoy and a, a lot to laugh at in it as well. So, uh, yeah, I think, be, um, I think it'll be good fun for our audiences as well as us performing it. I'm John McDonald, and you're on the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, and that was Butterfly Creek Theatre Troupe director Tanya Pegis on their current season of Bard in the Yard, Henry IV Part One. A rare opportunity, as Tanya says, to see a local production of one of Shakespeare's history plays. It's running this week and next week. Inside or out on the Muratai School Yard, depending on the weather. But sadly, that means it's the end of this week's show. A big thank you to all our guests today, and a big thank you to you for listening to the show and supporting Wellington Access Radio. 
Now you can listen again to the show as a podcast on the HeartZone pages of accessradio.org.nz or check out my Facebook page for links to some of the individual interviews and stories and my Facebook name is John McDonald NZ. If you have a suggestion of a hut story or a piece of music or poetry then do message us either on Facebook or email the team and our email is thehutzone at outlook.co.nz Do join me again next Thursday in the Hut Zone. Until then, keep safe and let's go out with some local music from Avalon Intermediate. It's the school's Kapahaka Club and this was recorded last year. Hairi Ra. <laughs> program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.